Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent, and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He's the master strategist and always directs our path. God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said He wants that. And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory. There's the way the world does business and there's the way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and His creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his call to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa podcast. We are committed to spotlighting the voices of entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the marketplace in our countries across this vast continent. This week, we are featuring Mugo Kibati. Mugo is a Kenyan business executive who is the CEO of Telcom Kenya, a company that provides a full range of fixed and mobile communication services, both voice and data, provided to the corporate, government, and SME sectors. From July 2009 to October 2013, Mr. Kibati served as the Director General of Kenya's Vision 2030 Delivery Board. During this time, he led the execution of Vision 2030's projects and strategy and met frequently with the president's permanent secretaries. Mr. Kibati earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Moore University, a joint MBA stroke MA in international business finance and economics from the George Washington University School of Business and a master's degree in technology and policy from MIT. He also studied European Union economics at the University of Oxford. We are excited to talk with Mr. Kibati and to hear his thoughts on how the government and entrepreneurs can collaborate together for meaningful and lasting change. Welcome back to Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa. I'm here with Ndidi. Ndidi, good afternoon. Hello, Henry. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I am excited about today's episode. We have a friend of mine, Mugo Kabadi, on the phone. And there's something special about just how you meet somebody and just the different people that got places in your life. So, Mugo, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Pleasure to meet you, Didi. So here's my story with Mugo. So 
12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago or so, a good friend of mine, Byron Laughlin, invited me to the UK version of the prayer breakfast, which was being held at the House of Lords. And that made a great impression on me. It was just wonderful to be in that place. I actually had gotten to know a little bit of it. And another story that's a little bit of a tangent, my step-grandfather was in the House of Lords. And I remember as a kid that grew up middle class in Baltimore going and just being completely overwhelmed. Special place for me, but more special this time because I was there as a part of this prayer breakfast to be able to celebrate what God is doing in the world and in the marketplace. And at lunch, I sat next to Mugo, and there was just something special about this guy. And maybe part of it was the fact that we were born in the same year. Maybe part of it was the fact that we were both CEOs of telecom companies. It could have been a lot of different things, but it was one of those relationships like I knew that this guy was going to be special. And I've met, as many of our listeners have, thousands of people, and yet you know that special feeling you have when you're like, that's somebody that uh, I'm going to do something with someday. And yet for the next decade, we didn't do much together. We got a great chance to rekindle our friendship and to hang out again. Last October, when we had the Fate Driven Entrepreneur Africa conference in Nairobi, that Mugo was very nice to co-host and to welcome people in. And I just thought it was a great movement of God. And I love a kindred soul and kindred spirit, somebody who has this long obedience in the same direction as he has with his faith, with his career. Yes, it's fun to see another telecom exec be on fire for the Lord. But I've been looking forward to this time together, Mugo, because you've been a leader, you've been an encouragement to me. And it is fun, as I remember back you know, 12, 13 years ago, that we get an opportunity to do more things together. And maybe it's not in telecom as I once had thought it might be, but I think it's for something greater. And that is being able to help faith-driven entrepreneurs in Africa lean into their guide calling to create as they look to the love on their partners, vendors, customers, employees, and to do it with excellence in the marketplace. So no better person to talk about that in my mind, at least in East Africa, at least in Kenya, than you. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Pretty, truly honored and blessed. So as we like to do with all of our podcast guests, we'd love for you to give an autobiographical flyover. So we now know that you were born in 1969, but tell us what your trajectory has been and how you came to faith and bring us up until the time where you became CEO of Telecom Kenya, please. Yeah, born in Kenya, born and bred in Kenya in a little town called Nakuru in the heart of the Rift Valley and really born to a couple of uh, civil servants or public servants then, government workers, and grew up, frankly speaking, as a Roman Catholic with very devout Roman Catholic parents. And a lot of my experience in coming to faith really has that perspective and that lens because many of the people I come across not many of them have the Roman Catholic background. But over the years through high school, college, you know, trying to do whatever kid in Kenya is exhorted by their parents to do, which is to study hard, do their best, and one day get a great job. And it doesn't always work that way. Obviously, through all that came across very many people, very many mentors and detractors both, uh, came across very many people of faith, frankly speaking, who initially, or people who claimed to be people of faith, but who for me did not really represent uh, an attractive version of faith, who frankly speaking began from the perspective that I'm a Roman Catholic and therefore, you know, there's something very wrong with me. And that being the point of departure, of course, I was very defensive. And to be quite honest, until quite late in my, in my career, in my life, you know, in my early 30s, when I'd really been to, you know, undergrad in Kenya, college in the US, little bit in the UK, back in Nairobi working and at the time running a cable manufacturing company, when I came across a gentleman whom you know well, I'm sure, Sam Owen, 
And Samoan to me, you know, he was the face of a believer that was very different from what I'd come across before. And the conversations I had with him really were different in one very key respect. We spoke about Jesus. He spoke about Jesus for minute one to, minute, you know, to the end of our conversations. And he referenced Jesus in what to me was a beautiful way. You know, how would Jesus do his stuff? How would Jesus do things? How does Jesus think? How would Jesus approach someone like me who was coming from, a, you know, as a Roman Catholic? I have to say that over the years, you know, I wasn't as devout as my parents were, so sort of a practicing Catholic, but, you know, not that rabid. But really, that being the comfort zone I was in, and I have been for many years, Sam was able to talk to me and to speak to me about Jesus in a manner that I hadn't really encountered before, not focused on the fact that of what I wasn't, <laughs> but the good that, you know, insofar as I was now in my early 30s and I had lived my life a certain way, uh, the good that Jesus had really helped me do, even without my necessarily acknowledging it at the time. And I began working with him in a journey with a great fellowship in Kenya. We have what we refer to as a National Prayer Fellowship, which hosts a National Prayer Breakfast, much like you have in the U.S. Actually, it's sort of a son or a daughter of the U.S. version. Those are sort of the early days of this journey. But along the way, because of my brothers and sisters who have helped me, who are much more far in the journey, much more self-confident about themselves, who were willing to hold my hand and allow me to be vulnerable and allow me to just take my time I came to the level where I'm able to host sort of the events that we hosted in October and to help organize the national prayer breakfasts, also to be able to accept people for who they are. You know, I was very judgmental in the beginning, and that judgmental nature had grown just from the way people had reacted to me early on. And again, working with this, some and my, my prayer breakfast colleagues and my fellowship brothers began to learn how to accept people as they are. I mean, simply because it's, the way, it's what Jesus would do. So really, that's sort of my, my faith journey to the age of 52, which I am today. So that's very helpful. I, one of the things I'd like you to go into a little bit more, and just for our listeners, I believe that the Kenya Prayer Breakfast is the second largest in the world. So it's through the leadership, the faithful, the long obedience in the same direction of Sam Owen going over 1972 and loving on marketplace leaders over a long time has delivered something really, really, really Powerful. And can you just speak to that a little bit? Because you talk about leaning on your brothers and sisters a bit. Can you talk about this network of trust that has been established through Sam's leadership over the course of the years that is really just, and it's even accelerating. Can you talk to that? Because I think that there's really something there about a community coming together based on trust and a shared faith. What does that look like? Because it, what you have in Africa through Sam's leadership is different in many ways from other countries. Talk about that a little bit. No, happy to. As indicated, Sam initially came into Uganda. Actually, he came to Kenya in 72, but I think he'd been to Uganda a couple of years earlier and then moved over to Kenya. There was a lot of stuff going on with Idi Amin in 1971 and had a little stint back in the States, but other than maybe five or so years has been in Kenya for you know the last nearly 50 years. And it's really been a labor of love to get to the point he has gotten us today, where we are sort of, we're just preparing right now as we speak for what is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we can look, check that out. I think the 17th or 18th National Prayer Breakfast in Kenya. The first one having been in 2003. So this is, you know, 30 years of his hard, patient perseverance 
starting with just a very small group of about maybe five people in the 70s, grew that, you know, manliness. And what Sam has been very good at is, as you say, looking for men and women, but to be frank, mostly men in the beginning in the marketplace who are leaders in the marketplace, leaders in government, leaders in the corporate world, people who had no forum to be vulnerable about their faith and their spirituality and their journey with Jesus of God and God. And Sam was fantastic at opening that forum and that space. Initially, there were just a handful of people, you know, a weekly breakfast, one of the hotels in Nairobi. But through the 80s and into the 90s, this grew into several fellowship groups. You know, so as you speak today, there's about at last count, about seven, eight fellowship groups that have breakfast once a week and including one in parliament, a group in parliament, bringing together people from different sides of the political divide. And if you guys think that there's polarization in the US, you just have come to Kenya and see what polarization really means. You know, but despite the partisan, the very strongly partisan views, you know, you've got men and women from both sides of the divide coming together every Wednesday morning in parliament to have a weekly breakfast fellowship consistently. And through these groups, Sam and team was, you know, able to convince the then president in 2003 to host the first national prayer breakfast. This has now become an annual event that has grown to the, at its peak before COVID, we're just about to host the first, you know, sort of quote unquote post-COVID. We're not quite out of it, but at its peak, we had nearly 3,000 people attending the last prayer breakfast in 2019. That was a physical prayer breakfast And this brings together government, political leaders, corporate leaders, people of different faiths, frankly speaking. As you can imagine, 3,000 people hardly, Henry, would be in the same journey or the same place. But what brings everyone together, much like the Mother Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., is Jesus. So we've had Christians, Muslims, but all speaking and praying around the person of Jesus. It's just been a fantastic phenomenon. In 2008, when we had a bit of a crisis in Kenya, if you may or may not know, we had an election crisis. We were able to use the prayer breakfast to bring together both sides of the government and the opposition in prayer. And this is televised, by the way. This is televised across all networks. So not only the 3,000 people who are in the breakfast, but across the country, people participate through their television. And so for them to see this was fantastic. And the way this prayer breakfast has been cemented is because we don't just wait for the prayer breakfast. The weekly fellowships, which are smaller groups, more intimate, people are able to share their challenges, pray for each other, their families, their careers, specific issues. And, you know, most of the people that are in these fellowships, there's typically a headline or two about some of them (laughs) that sometimes may not be too positive. You know, and, and they have an opportunity to explain to the group what's going on, and we are able to encourage and support them. And so through all this, the prayer breakfast is a culmination of these fellowships, so to speak, on a national basis. So this is credit, full credit to some, and has brought together, again, government marketplace, religious leaders, political leaders, to make sure that we have a one day of prayer and bring together people of different faiths around the person of Jesus. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's very encouraging and inspiring. And, you know, it just leads me to the natural question is, we have quite a bit of prayer emerging in our context, but oftentimes it doesn't trickle into behavioral change, especially in the public sector. And you've been able to straddle that divide, working in the public sector, influencing policy. How has your faith guided you? And how do you see some of these 
interventions like the National Prayer Breakfast having more impact in the way that public sector officials reflect Christ and businessmen and women such as yourself also reflect Christ in the public sector? Thank you for that question, Didi, because I think that's a very relevant question for me because as I'm sure it's true for you, Didi and Henry and everybody, you know, Lini, listen to this call, who have had your typical, you know, successful career trajectory. You know, you work hard in school and you excel academically. And because of that trajectory of excelling academically and in co-curricular activities, leadership in school and in college and rising through the ranks, you know, I tended to have sort of a very cocky, self-assured view of my own successes in life, my career successes, and really the journey that I've walked with Samoan over the last 17 years now has really humbled me a lot more in terms of my success or the things that have worked for me in my life, including some of the biggest failures I've had, which have been important in terms of showing me what success is or looks like, have not been my own doing really. I have been extremely lucky because God has granted me opportunities that he may not have granted people who may have been more deserving for his own reasons. I think I've been able to see and understand that a lot more over the last 17 years than I did prior to that. And in transitioning briefly, as I did five years from the private sector to government, that was extremely helpful. I really think that if I had entered government in 2009, with the same mindset that I had in 2004, 2003, before I began really on this spiritual journey and this fellowshipping with Sam and all my colleagues and friends, I think the cockiness, the, I think, brazen, misguided self-assuredness would have led to complete failure, right? You know, my role was to help transform Kenya from a low-income to a middle-income country socioeconomically. That was the objective of Kenya Vision 2030, which I was a founding director general of. And to do that kind of a thing means you have to deal with so many stakeholders, so many brilliant minds, you know, brilliant men and women, young and old, middle-aged, of every hue, every faith, every walk of life, brilliant in different ways that is difficult for my mind to fathom, right, on my own, because that's the way God has designed it. And So in terms of my own person, I had generated that level of humility because I understood now that, you know, I was lucky in very many respects. But secondly, and much more practically, frankly speaking, the men of the fellowship coalesced themselves around me. You know, I went to my prayer group and I asked for their help, you know, and their support. And they were amazing. You know, my fellowship group had two different fellowship groups and I used to go to two prayer breakfasts in a week. And this man agreed to pray for me on a weekly basis to, you know, they themselves being people in marketplace, in government, apply their networks to support me. Even larger than that, at our annual men's gathering, not the prayer breakfast men's gathering, but a hundred men come together for the four-day weekend. They dedicated three consecutive years to supporting me and Vision 2030 to sort of, especially praying for me because it was, as I said, a couple of headlines come, you know, will come out of, especially when you're creating what people view as a new center of power. And that was extremely helpful. And a practical output out of it is that in the structure and framing of Kenya Vision 2030, and, you know, it's three pillars, economic, social, and political. 
than what we call the foundations, which is sort of the public sector efficiency and the infrastructure supporting all that, railroads and all that. That's how it was designed. But we were able out of this fellowship of these three years to convince the government to add a national values system as the foundation of foundations. So that it became very clear, you know, through prayer. And for me, the miracle was to convince, you know, your hardcore prototypical government types that you cannot have a transformation project for a country that is purely roads and rail and energy and, you know, investment, climate reform and manufacturing and all that without having it undergirded explicitly by a national values system. I'm fascinated by this. It's incredible because you're right. You have a vision project that's going to go to 2030 and all the infrastructure and saying in order for us to accomplish this, there needs to be a transformation in each of us as individuals along these values that we all are going to acknowledge that we should all hold dear. And part of that is coming out of this kind of folks coming around to understand who this person and the teachings of Jesus. Okay, so that's fascinating. What are some of these values that people are holding on to? Oh, these values, and they are actually enshrined, you know, uh, because one of the outputs of Vision 2030 was the new constitution that we launched in 2010 and implemented in 2011. And it's basically about, you know, patriotism and focusing on the nation as opposed to just tribe or community sounds quite bland when you put it that way. But really, what is patriotism? Love thy neighbor <laughs> as you would have them love you. Love thy neighbor as thyself, really. You know, what is, you know, if you're a public servant leadership, leadership and integrity, you know, uh, we have a whole chapter of the Constitution, chapter six, which now we have said must part of the national value system, which is leadership and integrity, where your peers will review you and make a determination as to whether you qualify to lead Kenyans or any section of Kenyans or any part of society. But really, it's to take what you typically would have in a bland value system for a country and tie them to what we as individuals and believers and in our fellowships talk about, honesty, loving their neighbors, thyself, fairness, and then servant leadership. Servant leadership is really up there, that you're not there as cabinet minister or a permanent secretary for yourself, but you're there because you are there to do a service for the country and especially for progeny, for posterity, you know, just making that the basis of every road we build, every new power plant we put up, because what typically tends to happen with this big transformation project, we get lost into the shiny, glassy projects you know, the highways and the expressways. And along the way, people do the wrong thing, you know, where they use these projects to enrich themselves, you know. So really, it's a slippery slope. It begins by forgetting why you're doing this, you know, and you get awed by, wow, this 10-lane highway, the first of its kind in Kenya, which you did build. But if you get lost in that, then it's a very short runway to the next worst thing, which is, okay, how can I as Mugo leading this project it's a multi-billion shilling project, you know, find a way to get some hundred million for myself, you know. But if values are at the center of the vision and values always remind you, you're not doing this for yourself. You're doing this for the country. You're doing this for people. And not just for the people who are in Kenya today, but for the kids and children who are not yet born, who will come and find a functioning, transformed country. Then you're going to be, okay, the reason I'm doing it is not about 
the shiny highway and therefore how can I pocket something out of it? But really you're doing it as a public service, as a servant leader, and it helps you remember that. I think that that was sort of the the basis of our coming up with a national value system. So a lot of countries have come up with visioning exercises and I have friends like James Wangi and Acha Leke and I know McKinsey was quite involved in this exercise who spoke very highly of this initiative. But I just want you to paint a picture for what that future looks like. Kenya, when the vision was set and Kenya 2030, what is it that we can expect to happen? And what has already happened because of that visioning exercise, especially around education, which I know James Wangi talked a lot about, around health indicators. Can you just paint a bit of today and the future and then what has been accomplished? So let me just begin at the beginning in terms of directly answering your question. So in 2006, the idea was mooted that we could not continue looking at Kenya's development in simple short-term five-year phases, which are the election cycles. And this was under the former president, Mwai Kibaki. It was clear that to transition Kenya from where it was then as a you know LDC, least developed country, into a middle-income country in which most Kenyans, if not all, enjoy a prosperous lifestyle. And of course, you can define that in many ways. We needed to have multi, you know, long-term initiatives that would have to be 10, 15, 20 years, which are beyond the election cycles. Hence the notion of a vision that would be more than 20 years. So Vision 2030 was was launched in 2008, late 2008, and in 2030, so 22 years. You know, and across the broad spectrum of the economic being, you know, manufacturing, financial services, IT, tourism, agriculture, especially agriculture, which is actually, I know it's your area, it's uh, 25% of our GDP and 70% of employment is agriculture. And so what specific initiatives do we have in each of these sectors? How do we move away from rain-fed agriculture to mechanized value-added agriculture, which then goes into manufacturing, you know, and so on. But then you can't do that without a social pillar where you have education. And how do you move education from the root type of learning we have had to a more critical thinking skills-based kind of training and healthcare, you know, how do you have a healthy nation? So all this was thought through. And the political pillar was about really how do you govern in an emerging democracy, catering to everyone's needs and political desires while having the first two pillars developing. So anyway, what has happened thus far? I would say we're nowhere near where I would have hoped us to be, but we are quite far from where we were in 2008. So today we're no longer an LDC, for instance, you know, we are considered a lower middle income country, right? The challenge, which again, the national values would help was that you can be a lower middle income country where your GDP is going up, but your Gini coefficient is horrible, where you've got very few cadre of wealthy people who are sort of bringing up the average, but you know, the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak, is still suffering. So we have to do a much better job on that. So even though we've shifted from you know, low income to low middle income country, we have had tremendous development in infrastructure, tremendous development in infrastructure, roads and rail across the country, ports, airports have been built, new railway line has been built, the works. We've had reforms, especially in the health area, where we are now, at least every employed person, no matter what level of job they have, are benefiting from the National Health Insurance Fund, which we are currently in the process of converting into a fund covering everybody, including those who don't have jobs. So for moving towards universal healthcare, in education, we've moved 
from the rote learning type of education to a competency-based curriculum. I mean, obviously, this is still works in progress. We just launched a competency-based curriculum just a couple of years ago, had a few, frankly speaking, execution hiccups, but it's now underway. And it is the only way to prepare our children for the future, for the 2030 and beyond, because unlike our parents who depended on 30-year jobs, you know, we're moving a different kind of economy. So on the political pillar, we've had a new constitution. We have decentralized governance, decentralized funding for projects to the various 47 counties. Again, that hasn't gone as I expected. <laughs> there are people who would say we've devolved corruption, but you know what? Accountability has moved down to the local level. And so today you find that people having decentralized governance and funding for projects to the local level, people at the village level, at the local level, are able to hold their local leaders to account. I think in a much more efficient way than you do it when you have a centralized system. When it comes to the public service, that has been sort of yin and yang, to and fro, in terms of is it more efficient? We had a few good years in my view when we had a much more efficient public service. One, we had service charters with the public, but that has sort of taken a little of a turn and we have to go back to the drawing board in terms of how can we make our public service more efficient? But all in all, You take 2008, 2022, tremendous progress, nowhere near we ought to be. Are we going to be where we had envisioned we would be in 2030? Probably not. And that's actually a point of discussion this election season. But I can safely say that without Vision 2030, we would be a lot further behind than we are today. One of the biggest things, in my view, legacies of Vision 2030, is that it opened the minds of the citizenry to be able to demand a lot more of their leaders and expect their leaders to develop a lot more transformational projects and initiatives. Now, whether they're always able to get those projects or initiatives delivered as I would want them delivered is a different issue. And again, this goes back to why the foundation of a national value system that reminds leaders who are in positions of responsibility, that what they're doing is for the benefit of the public. So let me do this. I've got four or five questions remaining. Indeed, he's got four or five questions remaining. And one could say, you just can't ask them all. And yet, I believe in a God of abundance, and I believe that we can actually, that God sits on time of time and space, and that if we do it in a lightning round, we're going to get through them, and it's going to be beautiful. But here are the rules. The rules are, I have to ask the questions in 15 seconds. You have 30 seconds to answer them. Are you ready? It's like kind of like a game show. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, for our faith-driven entrepreneurial audience, What's a message that you would give them? You've got a collection of 200 faith-driven entrepreneurs in front of you, like you had in October. What's a 30-second message you would give them so that they might be able to catch the vision of what God would have them do in transforming the marketplace? Oh, good question. Remember the person of Jesus? What would Mm -hmm. Jesus do, frankly speaking? And hopefully that would connect what the marketplace day-to-day operational objective is with what the intrinsic values-based long-term objective they have is. Question number two, what's one thing if you've got an audience of investors in front of you, 200 investors that are thinking, you know what, I don't know that I can invest in Africa. I don't know that it's safe. You know that Kenny is going to be in a completely different place in 2030. What's one thing that you would tell them as an encouragement for them to consider investing in Kenya seriously? There is so much that hasn't yet happened in Kenya that 
invariably is going to happen. The convergence between, whatever people say about globalization, I know it's no longer a fad, but the convergence between what's happening in the rest of the world and what's happening in Kenya and Africa is inevitable. My kid, just like your kid, wants the same things. My wife wants the same things your wife wants. And yet there's so much that we don't have in this part of the world. So investments into just delivering on the basic necessities or what people think perceive as necessities is a huge opportunity. And even the worst governments in Africa are moving forward. So you can merge in some of the better run governments. And I'm not just talking about Kenya. Kenya and many other African governments which are better managed for an investor, I think that the return, the risk return quotient, yes, higher risk because we have less, but much higher return in a much shorter time because we don't have so got much it. that we ought to have. Okay. A continuation of that, you've traveled around the world. You've got friends in all sorts of different countries, including me and Alan Didi. What is one thing that you have seen is a common misperception of Kenya? where somebody ends up spending time with you and like, oh my goodness, I didn't understand this. This was a surprise. Some number of our listeners will not have been to Kenya before. What's one thing they should know that might be a surprise to them? Okay, I'm going to cheat and say diversity because diversity allows me to talk about more than one thing. In Kenya, you land in Nairobi because we don't know what Nairobi is. You're within one hour of the second highest mountain in Africa, which is snow-capped, one hour from a beach, one hour from a jungle where you have elephants and all, one hour from a savanna with the lions and all, and in the middle of a completely modern city with every amenity that you can think about, all within one hour of each other. And so Kenya is not what people see, you know, disease-ridden or drought-ridden. We do have, honestly, now I've got to be honest, we also are two hours away in Nairobi from people who are literally living hunter-gatherer type of lifestyles, which we're working on changing, but that is a very small portion of the country. The larger portion of the country is exactly what I told you. Well, I tell you also, the weather is absolutely phenomenal. Okay, last question before I hand it off to my partner. Is somebody is intrigued by this and they want to get more up to speed with what's going on in Kenya, is there one resource that you would point them to? It could be a podcast, it could be a magazine, it could be a TV show. How does somebody learn more about Kenya? Kenya Investment Authority website. Just Google Kenya Investment Authority. And you know, from an investment perspective, Google Kenya Tourism Board from a tourism perspective. I think those two perspectives, the Kenya Investment tells you how to invest in a country and who to contact and who to talk to. Kenya Tourism Board tells you a lot more about Kenya and where you can visit. Thank you, Mugo. Those have been fascinating responses. I also have a few questions. For those who are listening, who have straddled between government and private sector, what keeps you going to believe that change can still happen in between administrations? Uh, what biblical truths do you hold on to when sometimes you get frustrated with some of the transformation required? I'll start with the biblical truths. 30 seconds, a short time for that 40 <laughs> second question. God does things for a reason. God puts people in particular positions, in my view, for a reason. Even people whom we think are setting us back, I firmly believe they are put there so that we can see them setting us back and learn from that so that we can do better in the future and take less for granted in the future. And that is my experience. I think that development, what I've learned having worked in government and as a driver of the transformation myself and also being a corporate leader, is that you, know, you move five steps not necessarily two steps at a time, but you take 10 steps forward, five steps back, but you're still five steps ahead. And the five steps back are part of God's lesson 
onto how not to do things and how not to take things for granted. I love your optimism. It comes through very, very clearly. And you needed that optimism to do a turnaround at Kenya Telecom, obviously. Uh, turnarounds are not easy. What are some guiding principles for our listeners as to how to do turnarounds from a kingdom perspective? Well, I think honesty, you know, and again, again, that's one of the values and the traits, you know, of Jesus. Just first of all, at the very beginning of a transformation project like Telecom Kenya, candid honesty alignment with your staff, your members of your employees, your board and your shareholders. I mean, I've always been very clear that when I'm beginning a particular project or a particular assignment, that those who have put me in that assignment on those who are meant to lead, we are all very clear about the reality of where we are. Because if we are clear and honest about how dire the situation is, then we are able to see the opportunities and deal with the opportunities without being blindsided or having or disappointed or surprised by what comes ahead. And I think the clarity of the situation, how dire it is, and therefore the opportunities that they are, allows for better support to come from those who, from whom you are seeking support. I love that honesty. And it's clear that you have a lot of wisdom because not many people can navigate both public and private sector and still end up with a good reputation. And I've, I've asked a few friends in Kenya and you have a good reputation. And so the question is, how have you navigated that getting things done while still being liked? <laughs> tough love <laughs> is tough, right? I'll tell you what, by not focusing on being liked, that's the honest to God truth. In many cases, this has been true in Telcom Kenya, true in government, true even in East African cables. I think I have always started off as very unpopular, quite, a, I should say, significantly unpopular, and only over time, never been widely popular, and I'm not going to lie to you, never been. <laughs> but only over time have I found, you know, employees, colleagues, even board members, frankly speaking, boards that I report to, begin to appreciate some of the toes that I've had to step on. Why? And I've always made the point very clear. If you don't step on toes that you need to step on early enough to it in a game, you're not able to step on them. And that's where the honest, candid assessment at the very beginning and the alignment of everybody. This is how bad the situation. And therefore, what? forgive me if I step on a few of your toes because you know why I am doing it. And then later on, the results speak for themselves. Finally, I think just being honest and having integrity, I think for me, especially in government, you know, you can't afford to have a chink on your armor. And which is why I think also humility, you know, when I was able, when I went to my brothers and told them, I need your prayers, I need your support and help, I need your guidance. Amongst them were people who are in government, who are in the marketplace, who when a conversation was being held in my absence about something that I wanted or I had requested, God would place them in a place where they would speak up on my behalf, in my absence. So I also think humility about the fact that the task cannot be done by Mbogo just because he's the head of Vision 2030. He's just a conductor. He needs everybody. I think that's what has guided me. You hit on something there I think that's really important. And uh, when you say, well, it's not to be light, I'm interpreting that as I'm not going to be universally liked, and that's not my primary goal. And I think there's something really true in there for a faith-driven entrepreneur, and that is the mission is the most important thing. The mission is actually even more important than how liked you are among the people. And yet, if you're about the mission without having these underlying values, then you will go off the rails. And so it's this combination. 
which is let's get focused on what we're setting out to do. Me as the leader, I've got an opportunity to paint the picture of what it looks like, tastes like, feels like to be on top of this hill. And we're going to go after the mission. And that's the most important thing. And yet we will be guided along the way by these different values. But one of those values doesn't necessarily have to be to be universally liked. It may need to be rooted in prayer. It may need to be rooted in Jesus. So true. It has to be about the mission, right? And people have to know it's about the mission, but all the more important that you must have certain values. And those values have got to be values along the lines of the person of Jesus. Everybody agrees that, okay, he steps on toes, you know, but deep down, he's doing it for the right reason. People eventually come around to understanding that. If you're consistent on that, and if you're humble enough to let them know also, so I'm not going to be universally liked. You may not like the decisions I make or the moves I make, but every once in a while, I'll remind you by saying, oh, by the way, you know what? I actually don't know everything. I'm depending on you. And sometimes, you know, we have 10 people. We agree on one thing. It doesn't mean all 10 think alike, but all 10 have agreed on one thing. So I will force it, including the five of the 10 who want exactly on board, but this is a compromised position. So yes, uh, you're absolutely right about Okay, last question in the lightning round, and it's the one that we always end every podcast with. Are you hearing from something from God in his word that is inspiring you where you feel like God's speaking to me? And here it is. Well, I think I've already alluded to it or touched on the fact that when I say development happens, you know, in a few steps forward and fewer steps back, that was a hard, difficult realization because I don't know, you've all led projects. And when you begin, you've got 15 things you want to do and you want to attain them 100%. So when you end up only achieving eight or seven out of the 15, and even the seven or eight, you achieve 70% and some even 30%, it's disheartening. But later on, I realized there's a reason why God wanted it to be that way. Because even my you know, vision 2030, yes, hopefully we've prayed about it, but it's still a man-made vision, right? There's no way you can paint a picture of 2030 that is superior to God's vision. And so in a way, God has a way of saying, look, what you wanted may not happen by 2030. And there's a good reason why it will not happen by 2030. But something more like it, even better, may happen by 2040. And that's why we're doing 10 steps forward and five steps back. I've had a lot of that. that basically, what I'm trying to say is there's a reason God does what he does even when it is not what you had hoped for or wanted to be done. And, you know, with time, I get to see what it is, what his designs are, you know, and God's designs are for the best. They far supersede man's design. Mugo, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your leadership. So hopeful that listeners of this podcast will be encouraged to seek God out in the person of Jesus. And as they do so, they will hear from him and get that mission. They'll be able to do it winsomely and be able to just to bear witness to people of all different faiths, but point them to Jesus and that your mission and vision 2030 will be accomplished in God's timing, but with excellence. And I'm so excited to get back on the ground with you in Nairobi and see the work that God is doing there. Thank you. Thank you, Mugo. Thank you, Didi. Pleasure to meet you. God bless you all. Thank you very much. And God bless all our listeners. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. 
The best way to stay connected is to join our foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible with the special help of all our friends. Thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneurial groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country. We are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends.